For years, Rewind has been successfully backing up thousands of small businesses' data that is stored in cloud apps like Shopify, BigCommerce, and Trello, saving these small businesses from CSV import errors, employee mistakes, and app integrations that didn't go as planned. Rewind has also been backing up QuickBooks Online company data too. That's right, cloud accounting world, I did say backup QuickBooks Online company data. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, Rewind, later in the episode. Why would we want less than half of our profession to be licensed? If we want the CPA to be valuable, then we should be trying to get as many people as possible licensed. So we need to take down those barriers and try to get up to like two thirds of accountants being licensed because if they're not part of the club, if they're not licensed, then they don't have to follow the ethical rules. They don't have to achieve a certain standard of education. The whole point of licensing is to actually keep people from getting the licensing so the ones that have it it's more premium isn't that the like, that's the whole like argument against licensing at all right today is saturday august 21st this is the cloud accounting podcast i'm blake oliver and i'm david leary blake um i think i'm gonna issue us a press release what did we do what did we accomplish did we raise $157 million at a $1.5 billion valuation? No, we are number 2034 of all podcasts. 2034 of all podcasts in the universe. That should be like a press release, right? And we should tweet <laughs> about it and like put it out there to everybody, to the whole world, right? Yeah, I, I, I guess. That's a lot of podcasts, though. We, we got a lot of work to do. Well, there's probably more businesses in the world than podcasts, right? That's true. Yes. How come every company that makes the Inc. 5000 list this week has issued a press release? <laughs> so, okay. People are issuing press releases because they're number 3,258 on the Inc. 5000 list. And then all their employees tweet about it on LinkedIn. Or, and it's ah, just okay. like my whole feed is out of control. It, like I get it. If you're top 10, go to town. It's just crazy because then like Accounting Today picks up on it and then my whole RSS feed's full of stories because they're just these press releases infect everywhere because people just blindly mm. publish press releases. But like, is it is it worth a press release? I don't know. It's just, I, well, it was I my think, annoyance of the week maybe. I don't know what you want to call no, it. Yeah. I was just like, stop, stop I, doing this, people. So you're saying this, this Inc. 5000 list, it's what, Inc. Magazine's? list of the top 5,000 companies in- I think it's uh, private companies. And don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking. Like a lot of these companies are friends and family, right? They are companies we've either worked with, they've sponsored the podcast, we know the founders. Like it's not a knock. Who's on the list? Who's in our space? A hundred. There's so many, I don't even know where to start on the list. Like, like, like they're all on there. Botkeeper's on there. Brex is on there. You just, okay. any, any company we've talked about in the last two years is on the list. Gotcha. And that's my point. Like, does it justify a press release? <laughs> Every single company created a press release with numbers like we're 3,221 on the list. Well, like it's 5,000 press releases about being on this list. It's crazy. I think, I think you're right. I think we need to join the club. Uh, let's let's do our own list. Top. Well, we have to get like top 2,000. Well, we're there. We're 2,034. <laughs> we should have a well, press release that says that. I don't know. I, I, and it's not a knock. Like I'm sure internally it's very exciting to make that list. I'm not knocking people. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying like, it's, it's a little over the top making a press mm. release about it. Well, you, you know, you got to get attention however you can. Um, something that people have been paying a lot of attention to this week is TikTok 
and specifically the University of Alabama sorority rush. Apparently that's been trending on TikTok. I actually don't have TikTok on my phone anymore because I'm concerned about a Chinese company owning all of my data. Uh, and, and also it's a little problematic in that I feel like TikTok appeals to our worst uh, sensibilities. I don't know about you, but you know, open up TikTok and it's just like attractive teenagers in my feed. And I feel like that's wrong. Like I'm at an age where I probably shouldn't be watching that. <laughs> that's why I, 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 I use TikTok for a week. I just was like, all right, let me try this out. And I was like, something's wrong here. Like it immediately, before I clicked or liked or any video, it just started feeding me. It's like, it, it obviously knew enough that I was like a male. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. In my yeah. mid forties. Yeah. And it's like, show young women. And it just started right. showing them. And because maybe other, bunch of other, like, it's just, yeah, it's, there's the algorithm pushes you. You're right. Like to things that you're like, I probably wouldn't go out and seek myself, which I, I'm guessing probably is the reason you're talking TikTok and you said, uh, Instagram reels are on there or something. Yeah. Can, what's the story then? Okay. So the story of the week is that the, uh, the Bama sorority rush has been trending on TikTok. All these girls, you know, 18, 19 year old girls rushing sororities at the University of Alabama are talking about their experiences. And it's become a bit of a cultural focus point. And it relates to accounting in that there was a story on insider.com, formerly Business Insider. And the headline is TikToker shares how she spent millions of dollars for Alabama sorority at 19. And this is one of the one of the girls on TikTok talking about Rush. Uh, her name is Christy Sasso, at Christy Sasso on TikTok. And she is the treasurer for her sorority at the University of Alabama. And she's been sharing a unique perspective, talking about what it's like at age 19 to be handed the uh, codes for bank accounts with millions of dollars in them. So legitimately spent. This wasn't like a, a party fund or like it was fraud. She just she was an elected official and she responsibly managed this in theory. Well, I mean, it's it's you gotta, what you said is true. And it's also true in that it is a party fund because that is essentially what <laughs> a lot of you know that money is used for. And then it's also managed legitimately. She's the elected treasurer of her sorority. Uh, and by the way, I was the elected treasurer of my fraternity in college. So like that is one of the things that got me interested in accounting and bookkeeping. It was my first time ever managing a checkbook and using QuickBooks was as the treasurer of my fraternity. And so this this woman, uh, Chrissy, Christy Sasso, she's talking about how she has 400 girls in her sorority. The dues are a little under $6,000 a year. So she's managing a budget of $2.5 million. She says, you would assume that like some adult handles all this, but that's where you're wrong. When I was 19 years old, I was given access to several bank accounts with millions of dollars in them. And she talks on TikTok about how she has $200 in her own bank account, but regularly walks around campus with checks for $80,000 to throw a party on a Tuesday. And so she manages more money than probably half the Inc. 5,000. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and, and I did, did this too. Like I, it was amazing. The first time I ever printed out a check from QuickBooks for like $50,000, it was for some uh, formal that we were having. It was foundational for me. For her too, she decided after having this job to major in accounting, and now she's going to become a CPA. Isn't that great? So, you know, Greek life has this reputation of Animal House and parties, and it's not good for you. I think a lot of times, like people have a negative view of it, but there are is a reason that lots of people who go into the business world 
were in fraternities and sororities, not only does it teach you social skills and sort of like a networking kind of thing, like that's what Rush is basically, it's right? It's like trying to get a job, essentially. It also teaches you how to run an organization because these clubs, these fraternities, these sororities are, they're businesses. And you have uh, housing, you have uh, meals that you got to deal with, you got uh, events that you got to plan for. And there's enough people where it really becomes like a, a thing to manage. So, so if you're trying to hire accounts and bookkeepers in your firm, would this be something you would be trying to search for or filter through on resumes or on um, LinkedIn I, I, to try to do recruiting? Yeah, do you I think, think this is a valuable skill if you were the treasurer of a sorority or fraternity. Definitely. It's it's great. It's like the best preparation you could have in many cases, I think. I mean, it worked for me. So, yeah. So that was my, you know, culturally relevant uh, social media related accounting story of the week. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by AFO Wealth Management. AFO Wealth Management Forward was created to allow accounting firms to integrate wealth management services into their practice with ease. AFO Wealth Management Forward, powered by Arrowroot Family Office, provides a simple and easy way for accounting firms to integrate financial planning, estate planning, life insurance, and investment advisory into their current practice to increase recurring revenue streams without straining existing staff and resources. The program provides access to a robust online learning management system, one-on-one -on -one coaching, monthly Q&A sessions, webinars, and access to great partners, including Betterment, Vanilla Estate Planning, commission-free life insurance from DPL, and financial planning tools like Right Capital and eMoney. Learn how to easily adopt wealth management services through the power of technology and collaboration, and get 25% off when you mention the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash AFO. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash AFO. Where do we go from there? Where do we go from that? Yeah. <laughs> I, I could kind of go off a tangent on that. All right. Um, so there's a website called Business of Home, and it's for interior designers. And apparently they're doing some sort of long form interview with 50 different interior designers this year. And they're, they're, it's really going in deep about how they run their business, how they started their business, like everything they do, you know, how do they price their business, um, mm. how, how they staff it, all these types of questions. But the headline that caught my eye is like why this New York designer loves doing her own bookkeeping. And what I thought was relevant about the show is it really gives uh, an insight to a small business owner's psyche. A lot of times she wants to do all the billing and invoicing because it helps her keep track. So she's doing interior design and there's lots of small things they have to buy for a project. Are they, have they been ordered? Have they been paid for? Are they shipping on time? And by her getting in there and handling the AR and AP, right, she's in the mm -hmm. weeds with that stuff and it helps her actually run her business. Like she's physically connected to her business, right? But hey, then, hold on. Hold a second. So you said this is a TV. Is this like a show? Following? No, it's, she's an interior designer. This is just uh, an interior designer website where they're oh, focused on 50 it. different interior designers. Okay. So they're, they're a website for other interior designers following a bunch of them 
Yes. In and in her interview, she got very deep on bookkeeping. I got it. And how she loves it. That's See, that's funny because a lot of times all you hear is business owners hate bookkeeping. You know, or that's in all the ads, I suppose, for like software. It's like, oh, bookkeeping is such a drag. Solve that problem with QuickBooks. And and, and so it is a little bit of a drag. But, her, but she likes it. She likes it because it gives her that sense of control. And I think you as a firm, if you can understand why these small businesses, what's going in their head, you can figure yeah. out how to position your services for them. So why does she like it? So so one of it is, like I said, she can manage her projects. Like she's in the weeds. She knows if a project is on track or not just by doing the bookkeeping for that project. Mm. Right? Because she knows if things have been ordered or paid for, right? Or if they've been shipped. She also knows who's working on it, how many hours they've spent. She says it gives her a sense of control and safety. Control, yeah. And then the other thing is, you know, she likes to keep track of the cash flow because she said it was fine when it was just herself. But now that she has two employees that she's responsible to hit payroll for, she wants to make sure there's always enough money to pay their salaries. Mm-hmm. And then she wants to make sure there's enough money to keep them employed for six months. She doesn't want to just hire somebody for two weeks, let them go, hire them for three months, let them go. Um, she does let an accountant do her sales tax and yearly tax returns, but like, she really wants to do her bookkeeping. So I think as a firm, if you can tap into the emotional why small yes, business owners yes. are doing what they're doing, and if you could solve these, because she maybe some of this you could help take off her plate and she'd pay for to outsource. But obviously she doesn't, but you have to... You have to, if you're going to take this work off a small business owner's plate, you need to give them, like she says, that control and safety. 100%. And an insight. And most cast practices or outsourced bookkeeping practices, if you're just delivering them the P&L every month, that's not giving them a sense of control. Because what she wants is she wants to know, how am I going to do with cash flow six months down the line? Am I going to be able to make payroll? All of these forward-looking things that we often don't do when we do bookkeeping. So yeah, that's thank you for bringing that, David. That's really valuable. So all right. So do we have any other people we would not be expecting to do bookkeeping, doing bookkeeping? Any more stories like that for this week? Mm. Let me scan here. I, I, I don't think so. I, I think this is just going to be a random switch between different topics. We can't we can't tie these together. It's too much of a, a mix this week. So well, I'm just going to... How about this? This, okay. this was hot this week. <laughs> you know, instead of people, you know, I, you could argue if a bookkeeper... Or, or this interior designer, she has two jobs, right? She's an inter- interior designer and she's a bookkeeper. What if you just had two jobs and neither company <laughs> knew about the other company? Oh, oh, good pivot. I saw this article too in the Wall Street Journal. The headline is, these people who work from home have a secret. They have two jobs. And I saw that and I thought, this is every firm owner's nightmare is that one of their accountants is working from home, they can't see them in the desk at the office, and this person is two-timing them and working two jobs. And apparently, this is a thing now. T- tell me. tell it's me not a- just a theme. It's a website. It, it has rules and in, in <laughs> qualifications and strategies. So the gist of it is this, right? Like, I have two jobs. I'm working remote. I'm open up Zoom on the one company. I open up Zoom on the other. I'm on mute on both of them. If this one asks me to speak up, you know, I just say something in that meeting, then go back on mute. If both ask me to speak up, I pretend I had an internet glitch. Oh, my internet went out. And I, and you just, basically you're working for two companies at the same right. time, getting twice your salary. I mean, at some level, this is genius. It's even more genius than the guy who was outsourcing his job to India and then got caught after doing that for a couple of years. This is actually like half-assing your job at two different companies and they don't know that you're doing that. And 
I mean, the, the, the thing in the story about like being on two Zoom meetings at one time, I find kind of far-fetched and that would make me go crazy because one Zoom meeting is already hard enough to track. <laughs> like, yes, imagine- but see, the goal is you're not, the goal of this is to not actually track anything. So it, yeah, it's <laughs> to not participate. It's just to get a paycheck. It's it, and so, uh, so let's talk about this website Yeah, in case uh, any of our listeners want to be unethical. And although there is a question as to whether or not this is unethical, like if your job does not explicitly prohibit working another job at the same time, technically this is not illegal, right? Like there's, there's no law against having more than one job. You could be violating your employment contract. Some of the argument of this is it's, it's not even ethical. It's the right thing to do because (laughs) it's shifting the shift balance of power back to employees who could get laid off at any second. You know, CEOs are making billionaires and billionaires are finding the space. Like they're, they almost justify their reasons for doing this. So the website is called overemployed.com. Overemployed.com. The pitch is work two remote jobs, reach financial freedom. And this site promises to actually help you figure out how to do this. So this site was started by a guy named Isaac. Don't know his last name. It's not on the site, probably for good reason. Because he doesn't want to be identified. Yes. He's probably still doing this. So he was at a company where uh, there were going to be a bunch of layoffs. Like the company was not on a good trajectory. He thought he was going to get laid off. So he started looking for another job while he was still employed. He had his exit plan. So he did a bunch of interviews over several months. He got a job offer. And then he was going to negotiate his severance at his old job. But then it dawned on him. Why quit his job at all? So he decided to keep his old job while starting his new job, overlapping the two jobs. And initially, he was only going to do it for a month. But as time went on, it just kept on going. This is a classic example of how fraud becomes a slippery slope, right? You do it once, and then you start doing it again. So he's just kept doing it. And now he says that he has uh, been working two full-time jobs long enough where he has made an extra $300,000 of income. I think he's a software engineer. Yeah, some of these people are saying they've they pulled down two hundred thousand to six hundred thousand additional in a year because they also get bonuses in stock. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. Now you might wonder how is this possible? And if you're working in an accounting firm, you'd be like, "There's no way I could work two jobs. I have all these uh, you know hours to bill." And maybe that's actually an argument for timesheets, right? It's like if you have to bill fifty or sixty hours on timesheets, you can't possibly work another job. So I, I thought this was funny, though. The companies where this works best tend to be bigger companies where management is really just bad at, at managing employees. You know, and if you're an engineer where your managers might not even understand what you're doing, then this is easier to do because they don't know how long things are supposed to take. <laughs> and so there's specific traits and, and things you have to do to, to accomplish this, right? So one mm-hmm. of them is it's pretty straightforward. It's a little bit like Fight Club. You don't tell anybody you're doing this, but you also don't do too much work. Correct. And think about this. Like you've worked companies. You know, there's a project that everybody's trying to get done and something goes wrong. So you work late on a Friday night or maybe people cancel the meeting. So you reschedule the meeting as fast as you can on Monday. Basically, what you do is you become the person that doesn't care. When a, when a project gets delayed, that's good for you because you don't have to do any work. Because the whole goal here is to only work like 10 hours a week in each company. You don't actually right, do any right. work. And the best way to do that is to not be an all-star, to kind of just lay low underneath everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so do enough to have, not get fired. Not get fired, but right? that's it. Yeah. And because that's the goal is to be paid and not get fired. So basically, you have to have some mosky, uh, moxie on taking risks, right? You got to be cool with just taking a risk. And it's kind of in this like the YOLO economy. 
you only live yeah. once type thing. Um, now, you know, it's funny because in the in the comments, you know, a lot of people are criticizing this, calling it unethical, and it's a Wall Street Journal story. So I'm imagining there's a lot of you know small business owners reading this <laughs> that are like pulling their hair out. But to me, if this is happening in your organization, this is a failure of management. This is a failure to have metrics that actually ensure that people are working, that they're delivering work product. And hey, guess what? If they are able to deliver the expected amount of work in less than 40 hours a week, fine. Some people are really talented and can do that. Uh, but you know, if if they're basically just coasting along and not getting anything done, that that's your problem. You don't you don't have an effective way to manage remote employees. And they talk about that. If you can get just effective enough at one of them, you can pull this off at a second one. Just effective enough to make it look like you're doing some sort of production. And then also you want to make sure you get some specialized skills. So that way you're allowed to control your own schedule. You can minimize your in inbound meetings. So mm -hmm. you want to have some sort of specialized skills where you have a little bit more control on what you do. And then you want to have self-discipline, good communications, and the ability, ability to contact switch. It all takes is one slip up and this whole gig's over. So you have to be very, very good in having that discipline of keeping these things separated yeah. out. Um, well, and then- well, I was at a company, uh, one of my previous- Job, tech jobs where our, our it, one of our um, our Salesforce administrator got caught. He was working a second job, but he was really stupid about it because he was working the second job and he was doing it at the office. And he got caught because he was connecting to Zoom meetings at the second job from his first job Zoom account. And yeah, the see, logs that, that, of, he should have yeah. went to this website. That breaks like the one of the first rules. Like you can't do that. Right? Um, so, so first and foremost, you don't even tell your family about it, that you're doing it to some extent. You just maybe maybe you tell your spouse that might see the bank account, but that's it. Um, it's, yeah. You, it's, you, and then the other thing is, don't fall in love with one of the two jobs because that then you get emotional and then you screw up and make a mistake. Mm -hmm. um, and then the big one is you want to have a focus goal. Like, why are you doing this? Is it because you want to pay off your student loans? You want to retire early. You want to buy a, a down payment for a house. Is it financial freedom? Like have a goal and then on top of that, have an exit strategy because you can't do this forever. So yeah. get in, get out, get your money. And then the big one, the most important one is just be average because if you're just average, nobody notices you're doing it. They don't recognize you <laughs> oh and nobody gosh. gives you more work to do. I don't think I could do this. This would be like dating two people at the same time. I think it takes a I cannot do this. I'm too like, I couldn't get a second job. I don't have I don't have the skills to get a second job that is not in this industry. So it just doesn't. Everybody knows who I am. That would just never work. Yeah, and that's the thing is, how do you make sure that it would have to be in different industries? So I guess that's why big companies are good because they're so anonymous. Anyway, and it's, it's all about just meeting the bare expectations and not getting fired. And then because of that, you make double salary. It's it, it's actually why. So you could work super super hard at a company. Right, so you're going to work for a firm. You're going to work crazy hard, hard, put in eighty hours, bust your ass. And make your salary, or you could do shitty work at two jobs and make double your salary. Think about yeah. this, Blake. Like well, the argument for this is very hard to argue against. I, I think what this says more than anything is it's a statement about our culture. Like w people are changing how they think about work now, and now that now that uh, the economy is on the side of the worker, we're seeing a lot of people push back against crappy corporate jobs and saying, "Yeah, I'm gonna." I'm going to look out for myself and not for my company. And this is a big shift. And 
I think it's going to create, it's obviously creating problems at the, uh, the big four accounting firms in terms of their recruiting. I think you have a story about how PwC is delaying their return to the office because of COVID. I wouldn't be surprised though, if it's because nobody really wants to work full time in the office and they want flexibility. So you think there's really the uh, pushback from the employees? Well, employees are pushing back. They don't want to go back to the office. And a lot of managers want them to, and there's this fight that's going on. And so who's going to give? I think ultimately it will be management unless the shortage of talent somehow magically disappears. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Rewind. Imagine if a meteorite wiped out into its server. It's extremely unlikely, but if it did happen, Intuit would be able to restore all your data and everyone else's that was lost. Rewind has built a backup solution for data loss situations that are way more likely to occur to your client's data. Malicious attacks, buggy apps, disgruntled clients, and of course, ourselves. Human error, the number one reason people lose data. Say goodbye to making manual copies of clients' files, CSV exports, or storing redundancies on hard drives. Rewind is introducing a new way of protecting your data through an automated daily backups and on-demand controlled data recovery. As the leading cloud backup app trusted by over 80,000 organizations around the globe, Rewind has saved thousands of accounting professionals from mind-numbing manual data entry rework. By using Rewind, you can take a proactive approach to your client's data and be the trusted advisor that differentiates you from your competitors by showing your client how Rewind safeguards one of your client's most important assets, their data. To learn even more about Rewind and access a special offer just for listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash rewind. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash R-E-W-I-N-D. Rewind, protect your data, protect your business. PwC, they've announced that they pushed out till November to have people come in, but then they have a survey that they do and they're saying most of their clients are also pushing out well past Labor Day now. Mm-hmm. Um, they found that two thirds, they, so they uh, surveyed uh, 752 US executives and over 1,007 th- uh, employees. And basically two thirds are in favor of vaccine mandate as a condition to return to the office. Two thirds, two thirds of employees are in favor of a vaccine mandate. Before they return to the office. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a, that's interesting. That's a big number. But I but I definitely agree. Like the there's a pendulum swing here towards employees because you know mm-hmm. I think we've talked uh, you know this whole like great uh, the great resignation right forty percent of employees this year are going to quit and move to another company and then you have you know with the uh, the unemployment benefits and all these types of things there's just a lot of people not going back into the workforce because it's just it's just good enough. So maybe this would be the trend. Maybe you have to work two jobs. It's the only way companies can fill their open positions. They're gonna maybe they're gonna be okay with that. Like you can't have three jobs. We're okay if you have two jobs. Like maybe this is gonna be the new normal. Well, we're talking about the big four. So let's talk about Ernst and Young. They are launching a career path accelerator program. They announced this on Thursday. It's designed to give accounting students an accessible path to the 150 credit hour CPA licensure requirement. The 150 hour requirement is that extra year of education that at some point decades ago, we as a profession decided to tack on to the rule that you need a bachelor's degree to sit for your CPA exam. Of course, it gets mocked 
frequently, I like to mock it a lot because there's no requirement that the extra credit hours have anything to do with accounting. So it's kind of just a hoop you got to jump through and a money grab for university programs, which can now funnel people into one-year master's programs so they can charge people more money. Um, anyway, what this is going to do is allow EY interns who are on the road to CPA licensure, who are not currently enrolled in a master's program or additional studies that will complete their 150 credit hour requirement, it allows them to get those hours at EY. And, and this is one of the issues of, about like diversity in our profession is like the 150 hour requirement is seen as uh, discriminatory, right? Because it puts this unnecessary burden on people to spend extra money. Yeah, I saw an article in Bloomberg Tax about that this week, that th these and the whole CPA evolution is possibly adding more hurdles. Potentially, right? If it increases you know, the, the amount you have to study or the amount you have to get educated. I posted on Twitter, I said, better yet, let's just get rid of the 150-hour requirement. I think the thing, it's, it's totally pointless and stupid and expensive, and it doesn't do anyone any good. I have, I've, I've never heard anyone say anything positive about it. So so just to rewind for a second, because I have not done the 150 credits and I have not taken the CPA exam, but I'm imagining if I work for EY, I'm probably going to have to work my 40 hours a week and have my expectations to del have deliverables. But then mm -hmm. I'm assuming if I have to do the 150 credit hours a week, I mean not a week, but the 150 credit hours and study for the CPA exam, that's like a second job. And this is why people aren't getting the CPA, because not only do you have to work a full-time job, often more than a full-time job if you're the big four, you're working... 60 hours a week, maybe more, right? When do you have time to study? You have to basically give up your entire personal life to study on Friday night or on Saturday for the exams. And good luck if you have a family. Or just it's, get a second job and double your salary <laughs> and not get the CPA. <laughs> and like, not get the CPA. It's just kind yeah. of the same equivalent here as from a, from a investment of time and work effort. So I was curious, like every now and then I wonder is this hurting us, you know, our relevance? Maybe if we got rid of the 150 hours, more people would become CPAs. I really do, based on the feedback I've gotten. I can imagine that. You just finished college. You're done. Like, you got to go back to more school. Like, yeah, I can see that. So the 150-hour requirement was put up for two reasons. And this is my theory. I, don't, I haven't researched this. But I, I imagine it's because uh, university programs wanted to make more money. And if you force people to get more education, they're going to make more money. And then the other reason is that CPAs wanted to put up more barriers to entry to protect the value of their license. So you make it harder to get one, fewer people get it, and that you know makes you uh, more valuable. And of course, then the ostensible reason or the reason we all say we have this is because it's going to increase the quality. But we all know that's crap because it doesn't actually increase the quality. There's no evidence that the extra hours make anyone a better CPA. Compare this with this stat, which is that only less than half of accountants in the United States are CPAs. I just Googled this, so don't take this authoritatively, but you Google, you know, what percentage of CPAs or what percentage of accountants are CPAs? And I'm getting a number that it's anywhere from 30 to 45%. And I wonder how many of those actually became CPAs before this requirement 20 years right. ago. Right, right. Because there's a lot of CPAs running around that have been CPAs for longer than 20 years. There's about 650,000 actively licensed CPAs. There's millions of accountants. So th this to me is a problem. Why would, why would we want less than half of our profession to be licensed as, and as little as a third in some places? If we want the CPA to be valuable, then 
we should tr be trying to get as many people as possible licensed. So we need to take down those barriers and try to get up to like two thirds of accountants being licensed because if they're not part of the club, if they're not licensed, then they don't have to follow the ethical rules. They don't have to achieve a certain standard of but I mean, education. Isn't that the whole point of licensing is to actually keep people from getting the licensing so the ones that have it, it's more premium? Isn't that the, like, that's the whole like argument against licensing at all, right? Well, so that is the wrong way to look at it. What actually I think is happening is when when you reach a certain point where only say a third of your profession has the license, then the license loses value because most people are getting served by people who don't have the license. There, there aren't the, actually that many services that businesses use that are you know, monopolized by CPAs. I mean, it's just, it's audit, right? But there's, that's only a small fraction of the services that we provide. So by limiting the number of people that become CPAs and making it such a small group, we're actually hurting ourselves. Our, our license would have more value if virtually everybody who's an accountant got the license. Like it would have more value in them. I think it would, I think it would actually think about it. You want it to grow market share, the CPA brand, right? You, you want it to dominate. You want everybody to want to get it and to need to get it. So it's got to be at least half, right? I think it's got to be two thirds. That's what you want. Because then the other smaller group is the minority that doesn't have it. Yeah, you're right. Because right now the minority has it. The minority has it, right? Yeah, yeah and, I agree. I agree. If white, but it's like, then what's the point if only the minority has it? That, yeah. I can see what you're coming from on that. Yeah. So that's anyway. That's my argument. We should be taking down the barriers to get it, and encouraging more people to get it. Removing the cost, removing the time, and then once everybody has it, then you can talk about maybe increasing the standards and the requirements. You can't do it when it's only a small group has it. It'll just like if we keep on this path, it's just going to keep shrinking year after year after year. We're going to have fewer and fewer CPAs until there's so few that you know it, it we become irrelevant i'm getting off my soapbox what's next there's uh, a soapbox okay so, get, you get on your soapbox now this is not not even my soapbox edward mendlowitz he wrote a blog post on accounting today and he gets on his soapbox and he picks a fight with everybody it's it's amazing so i'll go through this um but just to kind of background he writes like 600 blog posts a year Right. He just pumps out tons of content. And to be honest, like I, I, I scan him and I'm like, there's nothing here. There's nothing here. There's nothing here. But he, he got on fire. So I'm going to go through this. So he sets the premise. He's going to buy a new suit. That's the really title does, of this article. It's it's the it's literally the headline is Art of Accounting, Buying a New Suit. New suit. And, and that I immediately didn't read it because I'm like, I, I don't ever want to own a suit. Every I day. always scan his stuff because I usually, that's my job on this podcast is you, you you get into the weeds a second and see if there's some magic in these articles. Most don't have magic, but this one had magic. Mm -hmm. And the gist of it is, is, you know, he didn't need a new suit, but he got one anyways. He barely wore his old suit that was only three years old because, you know, and, but he sees a lot of this in our industry. A lot of old things are being revived in different suits mm -hmm. and he goes through the list. So client accounting services, here's his quote. My father did this when he started 91 years ago. It's called trying to make a living. <laughs> Bundling services. This is a new term for what almost every small accounting firm has been offering forever. Subscription model. Fancy name for getting paid a monthly fee automatically. Been there, done that, still doing it. It just never had a name. Choice pricing models. Clients were always presented with a proposal to coincide with their expressed needs and to give it an added choice or a stepped up service that included everything the client really needed. So he's arguing they've been doing this value pricing. He's basically saying like all this stuff that we're talking about 
firms he's, have already he's picking been a fight doing. with firm owners, thought leaders, he's picking a fight with the app companies with, you know, that pump out mm-hmm. these articles that like, you need to do this in your firm, you know, et cetera. Yeah. Um, he talks about value price, right? And the best line in this that I love, he says, basically, you're if you're uh, doing anything extraordinary or out of the ordinary or complicated, it should revolt in a value price. And he goes on to say, as in my case, there is an Ed uh, Mendlowitz factor that creates added <laughs> value. <laughs> And then he talks about advisory uh, services. He said, this is the new word used for handholding smaller accounting firms routinely provide their clients. Like, it's just the handholding they've always done, he, he goes on to say. Uh, he talks about millennials. And he, this is great. He says, millennials who want to be accountants are no different than whatever entry-level accountants were when, they, when Luca Pacioli gave us his rules about double-entry bookkeeping. And then he talks about tax season, workload compression. He says it's a real issue, but it's continually mismanaged by firms. And then he goes on to say, I get it. You probably read this and you're mad. Email me. So here's his email and he'll take a phone call with you. <laughs> Ready? It's E-M-E-N-D-L-O-W-I-T-Z at Witham.com. Well, David, I think you should email him and try to get him on the show. I mean, we'll he, talk just, about all this. He, like, he just picks a fight with everybody. It was, I, it's just, it's great. It's, it's, it's awesome to see. It's so much better than a lot of his articles. It's, it's great. In some respects, what he's saying is true, that a lot of what we talk about in webinars and the thought leaders are spreading about fixed fees, value pricing, subscriptions, it, it's just a new twist on something old. And often that is the case, right? There's nothing new under the sun. We're just re, rethinking how things have been done. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, <laughs> I... Uh, I, uh, some of this stuff is questionable, I'd say. But anyway, we got we got much more to talk yeah, so about. Tons, tons, not tons just somebody's blog post. Uh, I wanted to hit on PPP fraud since it's never ending. Uh, there was a new study that came out about PPP Paycheck Protection Program loan fraud. This is not a surprise, I think, to listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast because we've been talking about the questionable lending and fraud that has been going on. Um, A study released Tuesday by the University of Texas at Austin's McCombs School of Business finds that nine of the 10 lenders with the highest rates of suspicious loans were financial technology firms, fintechs. So these companies like Cross River Bank, like Cabbage, like, I don't know, name them, that were doing PPP loans. That is where the vast majority of the fraud appears to have I think we talked about because they did the volume of loans they did, especially in that second tranche, was just ridiculous. Right. right. Like 25%, 30% were just those two companies, I think. We talked about that new company that started up in Scottsdale that was only like 18 months old did <laughs> billions. Right. Existing banks were only lending to their existing customers, which of course is going to reduce fraud because they already know who those people are. Yeah. You could blame the fintechs, but you could also, I think, easily blame Congress and the SBA for not setting up a system that would vet these applications. Like these fintechs just took advantage of the program to make their cut and they got a percentage of every loan. And that company in Scottsdale, I forget the name that you talked about that was set up just for PPP. They must've made millions. If they not- had a billion dollars in revenue and they were only like a year and a half old company, not a billion dollars in like volume of loans, a billion dollars in revenue for the company. As Amazing. Fees. Amazing. So, uh, other finding in the report, there could be roughly 1.8 million questionable loans with a total value of $76 billion. Now you put that into context and you think this is an $800 billion program, $76 billion, so I don't know, let's round up and say 10% of the loans uh, is fraud. Like for a program 
to get that much money out so quickly. I don't actually think that's unreasonable. I think that is expected if you're not going to vet all these loans, which is ultimately uh, what happened. Well, that's the goal because if they would have vetted them all, only maybe 80 million would be distributed by now. And right. That's the problem. Right. went under everywhere. They'll kind of right. crash. Right. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by ClientHub. Are you looking for an amazingly simple way to manage both your internal workflow and your external client communication? Introducing ClientHub, the only workflow solution that automates getting clients' answers because it has client communications built in. ClientHub is a modern all-in-one workflow platform with a built-in client portal for secure client collaboration that automates client requests for everything you need to complete your work and includes an internal workspace for your team to manage those work deadlines, and it even includes tools to help your team do the work faster. Your clients will love the easy-to-use ClientHub web portal and mobile app. When using ClientHub, everything is in one place. Your staff and your clients are always in the loop, and nothing falls through the cracks. ClientHub currently has an amazing offer just for our listeners, 25% off your first three months by using promo code CAP25. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash clienthub. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-L-I-E-N-T-H-U-B. I actually want to tie this to what's happening in Afghanistan. Because there's two numbers here that are actually similar. And I, I was I was reading this story, and then I was reading another story about the exit from Afghanistan and the money we spent there. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. It's often hard to put into context the massive amounts of money, $800 billion, right? That's a lot of money. But is it really? Like, what is, what is that? What, what can we compare that to? I see where you're going now. I, I see exactly where you're headed. There's been a lot of discussion about the cost of the war in Afghanistan. The 20-year war, let's just be clear. The forever war, the 20-year war. And that's the top justification for leaving, is that we have been spending all this money on this war. Uh, it's one of the justifications anyway. We need, we need this money to come back home to help Americans here, which is a fair point. And are we going to keep spending this money every year forever? It doesn't make sense because we can't apparently figure out how to conquer Afghanistan. No empire has ever been able to conquer Afghanistan from Alexander the Great to the Roman Empire to the, the Soviets. Do to, it. The British couldn't do it. The Russians yeah. couldn't do it. You cannot, nobody the, can like, conquer Afghanistan. Yeah. It, I think they call it the extinguisher of empires. Yeah. It's the graveyard of empires. It's graveyard of right? empires. That's it. But, and so it's just not, not doable. So how much did we spend on Afghanistan? There was a report in the BBC called "What Has the Conflict Called the U.S. and Its Allies?" Tallying up, it's got to be two trillion. It's got to be. Well, here's the thing: according to the U.S. Department of Defense, the total military expenditure in Afghanistan from 2001 until 2019 was 778 billion dollars. Another agency, the U.S. State Department, spent 44 billion dollars in reconstruction. So, all in, based on official data. $822 billion. You know what was also $800 billion? Paycheck Protection Program. Think about that. We spent in, what, a year 
on the PPP program, what we spent in 20 years on the war in Afghanistan. And look at the results, right? You can, you can drive around your town. You can clearly see like, oh, that restaurant built outside seating. Oh, that restaurant's still open. Oh, that business still exists. Yeah. So, so I don't know if that's a good or a bad comparison, but it is quite a comparison to think that Paycheck Protection Program is what we spent in Afghanistan. Now, listeners who are on, on the ball with the news will say, oh, that's not the total cost because we also spent money in Pakistan. So there's, there's more. Another, uh, if you include Pakistan, then we're approaching a trillion dollars on the war. Um, it's just, well, I wonder if you compared the fraud, the fraud that we, uh, of all that money that we spent in Afghanistan, would it be about 10% or would it be more? Well, this is that, you know, the, the military spending when there's a screwdriver, contractors, $500,000, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you're right. Like, like if they, if they invest, when the government, uh, county office, GOA, uh, GAO, right? Yeah, government yeah. office investigates and audits all that, that war. We'll see. Yeah, you're right. There's probably a significant amount of fraud, more worse than PPP. So you're right. Are we getting upset over the wrong things? For those of you who are really concerned about the human costs in Afghanistan, I don't want to diminish that. I think that is something that is awful. And the and what we saw on the news happening was terrible. I'm just looking at it from a numbers perspective here because I don't think that gets talked out uh, talked enough about. Well, it, it's like that perspective perspective we talked about before, right? Like your risk of, you know, getting ate by a shark versus a car accident. It's kind of that same thing. Like people mm -hmm. are very upset about some fraud that happened in PPP, but they're not upset over maybe possibly eight or million dollars that was spent that accomplished maybe nothing. Yeah. Or hundred billion dollars that was spent. Yeah. Exactly. Um, we talk about AI well, for a second. Yeah. And I think this might link us into app news. So we talked about last week about AI. Um, I think I talked about how it pretty much made no impact in detecting COVID. Right. Yeah, com complete, complete waste of time. Right. And we talked about how this ties into apps and bank feeds and in our industry itself. Well, uh, so down under, so this is an accountancydaily.co, which is basically the accounting of today of Australia and New Zealand. The Association of Chartered Certified Accountants and the Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand the C-A-N-Z, they are basically coming out with a stand that because accountants and bookkeepers are very strongly with ethical practices, right? And accountants and bookkeepers should be then the ones chosen to help lead adoption of AI that's ethical because accountants and bookkeepers live by ethics. And so when companies are implementing AI, they should everybody should bring in accountants to ensure <laughs> there's diversity, ensure there's fairness, they're sure that it's not surveilling employees, uh, uh -huh. to ensure that it's being disclosed properly to customers. And in a way, they're making argument to give accountants more jobs. Like the AICPA should do this here. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's kind of funny to me because, you know, we talk a lot about ethics and accounting and accountants being ethical and having to go through all this ethical training, which is true. But then the incentives in our profession cause us to be very unethical a lot of the time. When you're getting paid by somebody to audit them, for instance, you can't be independent. And yet we have this whole concept of independence of auditors that is at direct odds with the whole ethical stuff we're taught. It's, it's like we're double speaking. And I think that's really funny. And it also talks about how accountants should be brought in just to evaluate the business cases. 
Mm-hmm. Look at the long-term value, the reputational risk of mishandling it, the public interest, the immediate cost, right? I, I mean, I have to give it to them for trying to create more work for accountants, but you know, like nobody's going to bring in the accountants to, you think these AI people, these tech companies are going to bring in accountants to like keep them honest about uh, AI? And then it's also says specifically they should get involved in greenwashing. I had to go Google this. I did not know what this word was. Are you greenwashing. Company greenwashing? No. So it's basically when the PR department and the marketing department really swirl things up to either claim or not claim or cause confusion on what a company's actual global climate footprint is. How green is that company? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, a lot of it's just BS. And they, so they're arguing accountants should be involved in that as well to help clarify when greenwashing is happening and create those insights and examine organizations' claims about sustainability and net zero commitments. Well, you know how that could happen. That could happen if we actually had accounting standards for sustainability, but we don't because the accounting standards bodies are all focused on stupid things like lease accounting that nobody really cares about other than accountants. So, so there are no official sustainability standards that I'm aware of anyway. So, so maybe that's what they should be advocating for is like creating those. So, so creating the full circle back to last week. So remember our headline was accounting firm FreshBooks. Yes. And like, this is so dumb. Like this is, but, but I don't think a person wrote it. I think AI wrote it. And proof of that is I saw a headline this week on payments.com, P-A-Y-M-N-T-S.com, and I'm 99% sure every article on there is created by bots. They basically lift off a, a PR release, they put it in, because in the way it's obvious, because they always have a f- same formula, it pulls in the press release, then it finds some random second article and builds out the second half of the article about some other random company that might be possibly related. But mm-hmm. here's how I know AI was involved, and this shows like the lack of good AI. Here's the headline. You ready? Drumroll. Quick fee reveals integration with accounting firm zero. Oh, it's no. the same thing. So, so the AI bots are now broken. We're going to see this all the time now. They're going to call these apps accounting firms. And it's because, is it because one t- time the AI got it wrong and now other AIs are copying that wrong headline? It's probably because of us. It probably reads our transcripts <laughs> and it knows that we've been saying <laughs> QuickBooks is going to be an accounting firm. Zero oh. will be an accounting firm. Like maybe it's that. I don't know. But like, it's really obviously broken because this happened two weeks in a row. Two weeks in a row, bots have read, wrote, written horrible headlines about accounting GL apps and called them accounting firms. Yeah. And this is an example of how AI can go wrong, right? Because all it's AI is not actually intelligent. It's just copying what it's, it's, you know, what AI is a lot of the time. It's just like prior year work papers. It's like taking what happened last year, rolling it forward and doing it again, which works great if the prior year was done properly. But if errors are introduced and best practices are not followed, you get crap and it gets worse and worse and worse every year. And this is, this is just like that, right? It's the same idea. They're just copying what has been done, but that doesn't mean that it's right. You got to have people involved. And the thing that shocked me about that Financial Post article is like, that's a legitimate news site with like, I don't know, half a million subscribers in I think Toronto and no, no editor caught that. And apparently no editor on payments.com caught this either. It's just, it's just ridiculous. It's just because it's just like, and this is the beauty of our show, Blake. We plow through so much crap articles every week. Each of us probably go through 1500 articles and that's the beauty of our show. And we bring the real stuff to people because how are you supposed to go through all this? 
like like as an account or bookkeeper and keep track of the news when there's so much fake crap being written by bots. And, and, and if it's not fake crap written by bots, it's crappy articles written by marketing people working for all the apps and firms and just SEO bullcrap articles. There's just so much crap and the noise. And, and now we have bots creating even more noise. It's, that's even worse. Well, that's why we're here to help save the day. So I've, I've got a story about an app fundraising round. Should we jump into app news? Let's do it. I mean, we've already been doing it, basically. <laughs> uh, so now let's formally jump into app news. Blue Jay has raised $9 million in a Series B round of funding. New company for me. I have not heard about this. Apparently, Blue Jay. I've not heard of Blue Jay either. They, they are building a tax analysis platform. So our tax folks may be really interested, or those who run a practice with tax may be very interested to hear about this company, and uh, you might want to check it out. So what kind of tax analysis are we talking about? Blue Jay Tax says that it uses, uh-oh, buzzword, machine learning to validate and substantiate tax positions. So this is for doing tax research on you know, whether or not my client is going to be able to defend this position. Tax has a lot of gray area. You know, how, how likely are we to be able to defend this position in tax court? So we can push that envelope up to as far as it will go. And they're using machine learning. So it's not just like giving you cases. They actually will have you enter in information about the case or about the particular transaction. And then they'll use artificial intelligence to identify the strength of the position with greater than 90% accuracy. So this is a really interesting use of AI if it in fact works. It could actually you know, save us a lot of time doing research on different positions. I imagine it'll be more in the big firms or in corporate tax, stuff like that. Questions that they cover, economic substance, does a transaction have economic substance for tax purposes? Global intangible low tax income, is an entity subject to tax under the newly enacted GILTI regime? So, so how is it answering these questions? You're uploading to the QuickBooks file, you're uploading tax returns, and it's come up with this magic? So you input your scenario, you fill out a questionnaire with the facts of your tax situation, then Blue Jay Tax uses AI to predict the correct position based on what you've entered. Then you can test the impact of different factors and review similar cases. And you, then you can download a report of the prediction to serve as an independent assessment. So you can actually use this as backup for your position, either with clients or maybe even in court. Okay, so it's almost like a simulator in a way, like based on what you put in, if you take this stance or this argument, you probably gonna, there's a chance it's valid and they have some confidence score of some type. So basically, if your client is taking a risky position, you could say, look, if you do this instead, it increases the odds to over 90% that you're going to, th that the IRS will allow this. For Got instance. it. Um, so some other things that they support, Section 1031 exchange requirements, does a property transaction meet the requirements for tax deferred treatment, debt versus equity is, a, is an interest in a corporation debt or equity for federal tax purposes. You know, I don't know if this works. I haven't tried it myself, but it's one of the most unique uses of AI and ML in our space that I have seen. And I'm really curious to know if anyone's using it and if it works um, and if it's better than traditional research. I'm always shocked when these apps like this, like we're so deep in this space and there's always a new one that shows up. <laughs> right. <laughs> All the time. It's really cool. <laughs> I love this. I love what we do for that reason. So into it, 
made a very, very big move this week. Very, very aggressive move. It, it's a quiet headline, but it, I, I think it's a very aggressive move. So the headline is this. Credit Karma integrates money software with QuickBooks online payroll. So, so mo- m- money software. What is money so software? money? Money software is basically their bank account. So this is the Credit Karma bank account. They call it Credit okay. Karma money. And Intuit bought Credit Karma. Intuit bought Credit Karma. Um, they're integrating this with what they call as QuickBooks Workforce, which actually just full circle going be 11 years ago, that is View My Paycheck. So View My Paycheck that I created at, when I was at Intuit so employees could check their pay stubs um, was like the online pay stub viewer. That became a product called QuickBooks Workforce. So anybody that mm. gets paid by a QuickBooks payroll product goes there to see their pay stubs. And a lot of people that, pay, that, that go there, a lot are either unbanked, um, 70% of the employees, this is the stat that's in this article, 70% of the employees that um, are paid through QuickBooks online payroll are hourly wage earners who make less than $50,000 a year. So they're very, they're very uh, in tune of what their paycheck is that week. They have to watch their paycheck. They're very budget conscious, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But really where the big move here is about this, um, a, in QuickBooks payroll pays 15 million employees a year at $208 billion in payroll annually. And so I've always, even when I was at Intuit, I'm like, it's just an untapped market that Intuit is not building the full circle to, but now they're going to. So right inside this app. So when you go to check your pay stub right there is going to be an option to open a bank account and have the money deposited, put your money right in there. And the way they're going to do this, and this is why this is the big move. There's the very last sentence of this article. It's going to allow them to actually set up to receive their paychecks two days in advance. Oh, so Intuit. Or credit karma is going to float the funds. It's uh, during the ACH, like Earnin and period. all these other companies that yeah. are offering. You know, big companies are offering this through third-party services to their employees. But now, all the QuickBooks payroll companies, yeah. all the QuickBooks companies, can now offer this to employees. So this is full circle. And now, just interesting piece of data on this: when when we launched View My Paycheck, right? We people would just check their pay stubs on Friday when they got paid online. But then we um, we connected it. We started to let them get access to their pay stubs when the pay stubs were uploaded. You know, like to do direct deposit, you upload the pay stubs on a Wednesday, and then people get paid on Friday, right? Yeah. So what's happening is, as soon as the pay stubs are uploaded on a Wednesday night, people are the the we the, we moved the site traffic from a Friday to the Wednesday two days in advance mm-hmm. because people are budgeting, they're planning, they're trying to figure out what they're going to use their money for on that Friday. So like this is full circle. This, I mean, the only thing that would tie it into this, the next level would be back into like a mint type personal finances budget scenario, which I, I think that's only a matter of time until mint becomes part of credit karma, mm-hmm. right? They just kill mint and it's just credit karma money has all your budgeting and all that in it. But that, this is a very serious move and into it's very serious about yeah. being in the consumer banking space to compete with Square and everybody else, because that's $208 billion in payroll. They can move into these, their own bank accounts. This is going to turn them into a big bank really fast yep. by siphoning that money into whatever will the credit card my money accounts. And, and, and the right for it. I remember when I was doing View My Paycheck, every, the number one thing people had asked for was, this is great. I love being able to see my pay stub and the breakdown of my taxes. How do I budget my money? Very, this is the very first question. But it was so early. It was like, well, we own Mint. You could use that or you could go use Cricken, right? But they want it right there when they're looking at their pay stub. They want to be able to manage their money. And the best way to do that is to put it right in their bank account. Like this is going to be a big move by Intuit. It's a very serious move. The headline doesn't give it as much credit as the move that it is. We're getting toward the end of the show and we got a voicemail. I want to make sure that we play that. And two reviews. 
Okay, we'll do the voicemail first, then we'll hit those reviews. Hey guys, my name is Ryan Hill. Love the podcast. Um, I was wondering something. I'm, I'm a firm owner, by the way. Um, that firm size about a million. We're getting to the point where we're looking at uh, uh, firm practice firm management software or closed softwares. Uh, how to be cool? Maybe y'all could do a little segment on the show, um, overviewing some of the, the top ones out there, some of the better ones. There's so much to type through and when deciding what what to buy. Um, you know, so that'd be great. You know, some of the ones I'm looking at Jetpack Workflow, there's some ones called ABII that are pretty cool, but um, it's just hard to find consolidated information on it and I think it'd be very beneficial to firm owners out there. Thank you guys, keep up the good work. Appreciate it. Take care. Thank you, Ryan, for that voicemail. It's almost like you were reading my mind because I've actually been looking at all of the different practice management softwares for a project I'm working on. And so I just did demos of Carbon and Canopy and Client Hub and Lysio. And I am compiling all that and I want to talk about it on the show. So like we are going to do that. Uh, because you write a newsletter, a blog post, and then It'll, yeah, it'll make the news that week, possibly. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, and it's just so exciting what's going on in the practice management space now. When I started my firm, what, 10 years ago now, more than that, like there was nothing. I had to make something <laughs> myself. And now there's like a ton of great options. Are you also uh, f- framing this against the non-specific practice management software packages? You know, a lot of people are like, oh, use ClickUp to run your firm or use this right, or right. use... Yeah. Are you are you only looking at truly true process built for accountants, practice management, or are you covering the other ones? No, I also looked at ClickUp, which okay. I've used personally for some projects. I looked at um, Teamwork. Oh, this would be great to see this article. It's going to be great. Yeah, because there's pluses and minuses to choosing something generic that you adapt versus something dedicated specifically to accounting or tax. And I mean, there's even differences among the softwares and how they go at it. Some go at it from a tax perspective. Some go at it from an outsourced accounting perspective. It's really cool. So yeah, that's something I'm working on. And thank you for that uh, idea. Uh, I hope that our other listeners are also interested. And uh, like Ryan said, once you get to that million dollar mark in revenue, I think that's when you really, really need to start thinking about a system because your team is getting big enough now where you've probably got 10 people or more and managing all that as a firm owner, you need a system. And we got two reviews this week as well. I'll jump into the first one. The first one here is on Podchaser. It's a five-star review. It's from Joe Gamateria. Hopefully I said his name correctly here. Blake and David continue to bring value to all levels of counting and bookkeeping professionals week after week. With a convenient roundup of app news and insightful conversation about the actual impact of the individual firm operators, CAP is in my top three to stay in the know for my clients and improvement in our own operations. Thanks, Blake and David, for your huge contribution to our success, and we hope you take CAP to the moon, exclamation point. Diamond hands to the moon. Yes. Thank you so much, Joe. (laughs) I I always like it when people are like, they go beyond saying, oh, you just, we like the podcast. I always like when they talk about, oh, my own team listens to it, and I'm using it to actually make a difference in my clients or my firm. I, I love hearing that. That's my favorite too. Second review, super informative and relevant show, five stars. This podcast is quite amazingly super relevant for both accountants and folks working in SaaS. I'm a software investor based in London, not really a target audience, but I learned so much from real firsthand experience of cloud accounting software, quirks of the American system, as well as hearing about latest app news. 
One more plus point is that some of our investments were mentioned from time to time. Keep up the good work. That is from Cola Angel via Apple Podcasts in Great Britain. That's fantastic. And and you know what? You may not be our number one target audience, which is people working in firms and firm owners. But I love hearing when investors and app developers listen to because hopefully we can give you that accountant perspective so that you can make your products better for the accounting community. And, and he could help us by any of these companies he's investing in, have them sponsor the podcast. That'd be, the, that'd be a good idea. Get the word out. Help support us. Thank you. Yes. You want to share our voicemail number so we don't forget? Yes. Our voicemail number, if you'd like to give us a call, is 202-695-1040. 202-695-1040. You get a couple minutes on that voicemail. Give us a call. Let us know what you think about any of the stories we discussed today or anything you'd like us to talk about on a future episode. And David, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, where can they do that online? Uh, I'm on all the socials. I'm at David Leary. If it's LinkedIn, just make sure you say I'm not a bot. I am at Blake T. Oliver. Thanks, David. I had a great time this week, and I'm looking forward to the next one. It was a fun one. Bye, everybody. Time for the classifieds. Have you dreamed of starting a bookkeeping business, but you don't know where to start? Join the Bookkeeping Biz Workshops, a four-day live workshop series hosted by Serena Shoup, CPA. You'll learn what it takes, which tech to start with, how to build a business, not a job, plus you'll get comfortable on discovery calls. The workshops begin August 22nd, so register today at bkworkshops.online. That is bkworkshops.online. If you're looking to fast track a scalable seven-figure accounting firm that doesn't drive you into the ground, check out Ryan Lazanis's online coaching membership, Future Firm Accelerate. Designed around Ryan's experience taking his cloud firm from scratch to sale so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You'll get online learning and topics that help you automate and systemize all aspects of your firm. You'll get coaching when you need help with implementation. And you'll also join a collaborative community of hundreds of others forward-thinking firm owners. For more details, head over to www.futurefirmaccelerate.com. That is www.futurefirmaccelerate.com. I quickly wanted to let you know about a new project that I've been working on for the last year or so. I'm launching a podcast network called Accounting Podcast Network. It has new podcasts that I know you'll love, like the Accounting Salon Conversations podcast hosted by Amanda Aguilar and the Accounting Automation Workflows podcast co-hosted by Brian Clare and Heather Satterley. Head over to accountingpodcastnetwork.com. That's accountingpodcastnetwork.com. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info. Sorry, hold on. Thomas, I'm recording. You can't come in. What's going on? Is there an emergency? Uh, the air filters need to be replaced. The air filters need to be replaced? Yeah. Yeah, that's not an emergency. <laughs> that's the great. All of them. All of them. Yeah, I know. I ordered replacement filters. It's not an emergency, though. Okay. Thanks.
Can you please close the door? <laughs> that is the best one. Okay. Best. <laughs> Bye, Thomas. I love you. I'll see you in 40 oh, minutes. That was well played. That's yeah. great.